Before we get started, please don't forget to rate and review wherever possible. It really helps our podcast find the ears of listeners just like you. Also, if you have a story to tell, don't forget to submit it via email at contact at campfirecoldpod.com or leave a voicemail message at 720-297-8608. You can also follow us anywhere socially at Campfire Cult Pod and visit us online at campfirecultpod.com. to the Campfire Cult Podcast. From a camper van deep in the haunted woods, I bring you first-hand accounts of chilling encounters with the paranormal. Step into the night and take a peek into the realm where reality and the supernatural collide. My name is Jazz, and I'll be your host. That thing, that was no dog. That was too big to be a dog. That thing was bigger than me. That thing was stalking cornfields, jumping on cars, and feasting on roadkill. For two years, people in Elkhorn, Wisconsin, whispered about a king-sized creature who roamed Bray Road. It had really big claws. It was holding its roadkill like it had elbows. And it was kneeling on two knees, like a human being might do. Welcome back, campers. As twilight descends, casting long shadows over the rustic landscape, tales of a terrifying creature with the body of a man and the fearsome visage of a canine becomes more than just fireside stories. Tonight, come with me to where the lines between myth and reality blur, and the legend of the dogman becomes a reality. In our first story of the evening, we're headed back to where the modern-day legend began. Mark Shackleman arrived at St. Coletta's School for Exceptional Children a little before midnight. As the night watchman for the school, he walked these grounds every night. The school was located inside a former Franciscan convent outside Jefferson, and the grounds covered several old buildings, an orchard, and wide open fields where several old Native American burial mounds had been preserved. The year was 1936, and Shackleman was in his 30s a husband and father working the uneventful job for a paycheck to support his family. In rural Jefferson, there wasn't much to worry about, save the possibility of a burglar or some teenagers playing a prank. That night, Shackleman was crossing the fields when he saw a shadow. He squinted to see what it was. A hunched form was on all fours, digging into one of the mounds. From the canine way it dug, it could have been a dog or maybe a wolf, but even from far away, Shackleman could see that the thing was far too big for that. Suddenly, it looked at him, and then it stood up. The sleek, hairy body unfurled to over six feet tall. It had a shaggy, canine face. But beneath the thick fur, the muscular body of a man. A low growl echoed across the field. He smelled rotting meat. His heart beating fast, trying to control his breath, Shackleman stepped back. With sudden violence, the thing turned and ran off into the trees and was gone. The next night, 
Shackleman returned to St. Coletta for his usual rounds. As he walked the fields, he saw the shadow again, digging into the same mound as the night before. This time he gripped his flashlight tight, ready to run or swing if need be. Again, it stood up, but this time it opened its mouth. Shackleman saw fangs hanging down from its teeth and its lips pulled back in a snarl. It growled at him, its speech half human and half beast. He didn't move and again the creature turned and left. He never saw it again, but the horrendous growl, the way it seemed to speak to him, stuck in his mind for years afterward. This legend is the first reported sighting of the creature that would eventually become known as the Beast of Bray Road. Sightings became prevalent in the 80s and 90s, particularly centralized around Elkhorn, Wisconsin. One woman reported the beast attempting to break into her home and later injuring one of her horses, leaving a gash across its back. She claimed the footprints it left behind were over 12 inches long. A woman spotted it crossing the road in front of her car. Another driver saw it crouched on the side of the road, eating an animal. One young girl reported the beast chasing her through the forest. In 1999, an 18-year-old girl was driving down Bray Road near Delavan when she says her right tire hit something, lifting it up off the ground. She stopped and got out to see what she had run over, but there was nothing there. She looked to the side of the road and saw a massive wolfish form standing on two legs. She rushed back into the car, and as she peeled away, the beast leapt onto her trunk, but slid off in the slick rain, and she sped home. When she came forward with her story, many of the other sightings were reported as well, prompting both further investigation and fresh skepticism and mockery. These sightings prompted The Week, a Walworth County weekly paper, to send Linda Godfrey to investigate and compile stories. While initially skeptical, Godfrey says she came to believe the sincerity of the witnesses who spoke to her. On her website, Godfrey writes, there's a high probability that everyone is not always seeing the same thing. There could be a biological, physical animal seen by some while others see phantoms or supernatural entities from a variety of sources. A few may be misidentifications or hoaxes. In 2003, Godfrey wrote The Beast of Bray Road, tailing Wisconsin's werewolf, which recounts in depth what she learned speaking to the many witnesses in and around Elkhorn who report interactions with the beast. Sighting of the beast have slowed down considerably since the 90s although one or another still crops up on occasion. The veracity of any of these claims remains a cause for speculation. But for now, we'll leave you with a quote from one of the masters of the strange and terrifying H.P. Lovecraft. There are horrors beyond life's edge that we do not suspect, and once in a while man's evil prying calls them just within our range. Next, in the secluded Catskill Mountains, a couple's peaceful stay in a converted RV cabin takes a chilling turn, leading them to a spine-tingling encounter with mysterious glowing eyes lurking deep in the woods. I was staying in the Catskill Mountains in New York State for a few days. I had booked an Airbnb with my girlfriend where we could bring our 100-pound German Shepherd. The Airbnb was a strange RV that was converted into a cabin. The place was far away from any other houses and on the side road, basically on the side of a mountain overlooking an amazing view. The stay had two fire pits. One was right next to the cabin and the other was about 800 feet away on top of a hill. 
The last night we were there, we were having one last fire in the faraway fire pit. The fire pit had a great view of the mountain range on one side, and the other side sat up against the wood line. We had our dog off leash, and we were playing some music on a Bluetooth speaker. Our dog kept looking towards the wood line, and it was freaking my girlfriend out. We would occasionally turn the music off and just listen to see if we could hear anything. I also had a small LED flashlight and would scan the woods with it looking for any animal eyes it picked up. Well, after a little bit of this, my dog jumped up to his feet and started full force aggressively growling at the woods. Just when I was getting up and turning the music off, my dog darted at the woods, maintaining his high alert status. He juked left, and I heard something take only a few steps back in response. I was able to call him back to me right away, at which point he crept back, keeping his eyes locked on this creature. As my girlfriend held our dog's collar, I stepped closer into the woods with my flashlight and small knife in hand. As I was scanning the woods, my flashlight picked up on a set of eyes, which now looked and sounded a lot further back than we had heard the steps. The eyes were glowing like a dog's eyes in the light of my LED flashlight, but the height is what threw me off. It was too tall to be any animal. I would expect to see raccoon, coyote, skunk, etc. I figured it was a black bear. Although, black bears are very skittish to people and especially dogs unless protecting their young, so it wasn't adding up in my head. I sat there for a solid three to four minutes trying to focus on what this was. The eyes also didn't look like a bear, it looked like a crouching dog. I was lost in my curiosity, and my girlfriend went into almost shock, put the music back on and said, we're getting out of here and going inside. I kept telling her to turn the music off and started walking back to her without turning from the woods, but I wasn't going to stay out there alone. She started dragging our dog back to the cabin, and my dog and I had our eyes fixed on the woods. As soon as my flashlight went off, the creature started following alongside of us in the wood line. The footsteps I heard sounded just like a person walking in the woods, and as it followed us, I heard at least two separate sets walking near it in the woods. We got inside the cabin, locked the door, and shut all the blinds, and were completely freaked out. I spent the next hour or so listening and watching out the window, hoping the animal would walk into the spotlight off the cabin so I could identify it. I never saw anything step out, but the footsteps continued walking around back there behind the cabin in the woods. I stepped out the door about an hour or two later, but heard nothing and searched with my flashlight. Whatever I heard that night was not afraid of my dog, and I have never seen my dog act like this. My dog will chase rabbits and even deer without making a sound. Luckily, he always comes back to me when I call him. I have spent a lot of time outdoors in my life and have always been able to identify any animal encounters. I have asked a lot of my hunting friends about this and asked what animal would react like this and not instantly run away from a dog of his size. The mystery of not knowing is what creeps me out the worst. Up next... An outdoorsman has a run-in with a wolf-like creature in northern Wisconsin. I'm an outdoorsman. I'm very experienced in hunting, camping, hiking, and general survival. I'm very familiar with and used to all local wildlife. I was charged by what I believe was a cryptid, called a dogman. 
It charged me and my cousin, and it was not a bear. A bear cannot move how it did. It was not a normal wolf, as they can't comfortably run on two legs, whereas what charged us seemed to run as naturally as a man would. This happened around June or July of 2007. I was around 17 years old and more cocky then, but still somewhat knowledgeable of the outdoors. My family used to own a cabin in northwest Wisconsin. I basically grew up there in the summer. I knew the woods well, but at night it was wise to stay in the cabin, or at least by the bonfire by the beach because of bears, wolves, and cougars. One of the creepiest things was if you were having a bonfire, the tree line was visible from the fire pit and beach. At night, you always felt like you were being watched from that tree line. But during the day, the woods always seemed normal. Not so creepy. That is until this incident. So this happened somewhere between noon and 2 p.m. Me and my cousin were having an airsoft battle. I was in full woodland camo. He was not. I retreated onto the ATV trail into the woods for a tactical advantage. Our battle took us about 200 meters into about a third of the way up the trail. We had enough at this point and were standing at the edge of a clearing on the trail talking. He was maybe 10 feet from me when I decided to mess with him. I shooshed him and said, we're being watched. He froze. Then I realized the woods were dead quiet and I got spooked and started scanning the tree line and the other edge of the clearing from left to right when I saw it. Its teeth gave it away and it was panting and staring at my cousin. I don't expect you to believe me, but what I saw was a wolf as big as a black bear at least 300 pounds, but it wasn't normal. This wolf was on two legs crouching next to a tree with its arm grasping the tree, grasping with a clawed hand. It had reddish brown fur. I told my cousin we have to go, and next thing I know he is sprinting, and I look back at Wolfie who had locked on and sprinted a few steps on two feet. Then I turned and ran when it looked like Wolfie was dropping to all fours. It charged us and sounded right on our asses, barreling through the brush, but for whatever reason, let us go when we broke out of the tree line and headed for the cabin. What stuck with me the most was the sheer size of it. Wolfie appeared to be nearly seven feet tall when standing upright. Where it should have had front paws, it appeared to have large clawed hands. Now, I'm not sure how to explain it away rationally. I have heard wolves will occasionally kind of walk upright, but as far as I know, they can't sprint on two legs. Nor do wolves get that big and black bears more waddle when on two legs. The closest description I've found is simply of a classic werewolf, or what is now known as a dogman. Next, in the quiet backwoods of Virginia, a decade before the infamous dogman lore gained popularity, an entity disrupted the serene life of a family living on the edge of the Appalachian wilderness. This was not a report I myself witnessed, but instead one my grandmother told me about that my aunt later corroborated independently, so I think they're trustworthy. At the time, I'll note there wasn't much talk of dogmen, as this was about a decade before the infamous song came out, though there was talk of wolves or werewolf-like monsters in Appalachia for a long time, so my aunt and grandmother just always called it that wolf thing. For a little background, my grandparents' home is in the backwoods of Western Grayson County, Virginia which to this day is still sparsely populated outside of one or two large towns on the east side. And back then, it was even less so. Extremely thick forest with hilly terrain in all directions. You have to get on a dirt path and follow it for about half a mile to get to a gravel-covered side road, and then follow it for about 30 minutes to reach a very small town just across the North Carolina border. 
If you go a short ways north, you find yourself at the Blue Ridge Mountains and Parkway that lead up into Appalachia proper. The forest is mostly low-lying shrubs up to around four feet high, with pine and a lot of black oak trees making up the canopy. There is a very clear stream about 30 yards from the house, which I fish quite frequently. This, along with wild blackberries, tenderleaf shrubs, and some apple trees, make it very lucrative for wildlife. The house itself is an old two-story house built onto an incline of the hill that overlooks it. This was back in the 1970s. My aunt believes it was 1978 as she was finishing high school at the time. My father had graduated from college and was going on to the Air Force, so he had already moved out. My grandfather, although he was old enough to retire, liked to remain busy, so he worked his old job as an electrician and power pole technician in an advisory role because he was getting up there in years. He had just gotten a contract down in North Carolina, so he was away from the house for about a week and a half. This left only my 17-year-old aunt and grandmother at the house. As I said, there usually was a lot of wildlife in the area. A typical morning for my grandmother was making breakfast and sitting out on her porch watching deer and rabbits eat at the shrubs. Sometimes she would also see or hear a bobcat, fox, or coyote about. On one occasion, a mountain lion and her cubs strolled right past the house. One animal she was familiar with in particular was a very large black bear, who could be recognized by folks around those parts from a white patch on his chest and a hole in his left ear. My grandmother nicknamed him Captain because he had a habit of sitting on his haunches and reaching up with his paws to pick apples, a motion that looked like he was saluting. Captain was a very big black bear, but wasn't very aggressive unless tested. He seemed to have an agreement with my grandmother and grandfather that if they left him alone, he would leave them alone. He just strolled by the house every now and then to have some blackberries on the bushes or apples that had fallen down, which meant he came by the house often as he was too big to climb trees and the fruit trees around the house were low enough he could reach up and pick food. My grandfather guesstimated he was somewhere in the 500 to 600 pound range and roughly six feet tall, as my grandfather once measured some scratch marks he left on a tree. During the week, my grandmother noticed a fairly sharp decline in the animals nearby. It was the latter part of summer in a wet season, so most of the plants were full bloom and the leaves were at their tenderest. Yet she couldn't see hide nor hair of any rabbits or deer coming to graze. A coyote she had heard yapping every night for the past month seemed to vanish. A few neighbors, by neighbors I mean people who lived within five miles, who stopped by told her something had taken their dog and their chicken coop had been smashed into. They assumed the mountain lion that lurked about had done it since it was the only other thing, besides Captain, that was big enough to take down an 80-pound farm dog. They checked around but couldn't find anything. The next night, my grandmother was woken up by my aunt, who told her that she heard something bang against the outside of her wall. They checked around in the morning after and found one of the deer butchered with a bloody smear on the wall. Judging from the way the gravel was disturbed, the deer had been walking by the house when something ambushed it, and in the struggle, it got smacked against the wall. My grandmother, having grown up in the woods, was familiar with predator kills and methods. Mountain lions tend to jump on the back and rake their claws across the flanks to hold on as they bite the neck. Black bears will usually break the neck or the back with their paws while biting the head, and the rare occasions, coyotes attack deer. They usually do it by biting down on the inside of the leg and twisting to rip the muscle and arteries. This kill clearly had the throat ripped out, but there weren't any claw marks to be found, and the bite looked narrower than what a cougar would do. Plus, she could gander there was only one predator from the way the ground had been disturbed, which didn't make sense for coyotes, as they typically hunted in pairs since just one alone isn't usually enough to bring down a full-grown deer. 
After disposing of the carcass, the next few nights were relatively uneventful, except for the fact several times my aunt or grandmother would be woken up in the middle of the night by the sound of something panting outside. Now in these woods, you can hear a pin drop if it's close enough, and at some points, they could swear the animal making the panting was directly outside the wall. One day, my grandmother was picking some berries when she noticed what looked like dog tracks of a very large hound going through a mud flat bordering the nearby stream. Thinking it might be the missing farm dog who had maybe just run away, she followed the tracks until she heard something loudly growling at her from across the stream. She looked up to see the partially obscured face of what looked like one large, bulky, brown-colored coyote or wolf standing in a thicket on the other side of the stream. She quickly began to back away, glancing back only to check her footing on the slope that led down to the stream. When she looked back, she saw the very distinctly canine face in much greater detail because the animal had moved out from undercover. But instead of stepping out of the leaves like she thought it did at first, she soon noticed that it was instead standing up on its hind legs and peering over the shrubs. She had seen canines stand upright before. Dogs do it, foxes can do it, coyotes sometimes do it. It was the size that took her off guard. She had been to that exact same thicket of shrubs just the other day and her head only just barely reached the top, and my grandmother was around five foot three inches. This thing had its head pitched clear over the shrubs with a little bit of extra visible. And usually when a predator is making no attempt to hide, it's usually because it's trying to intimidate someone. My grandmother managed to back away to the hill without turning around. And when she started to get out of sight, the creature stepped out of the thicket on its hind legs. It strolled forward in a very uncanny way she had trouble describing, but she insisted it never went back down on all fours. Needless to say, she ran to the house in a backpedal sprint. That night, they heard the panting again, along with a distant howl and scraping sounds. They found the garage door, back door frame, and kitchen window frame all had claw marks on them from something investigating them. The canine creature was seen a few more times across the week by my grandmother and the neighbors, usually on or near the area of my family's property. My aunt finally saw it when she saw a pair of fuzzy ears outside her window. Now she wasn't startled right off the bat from this, as Captain had come by her window a few times before, and she gradually lost some fear of the big bear over the years. But in his case, his ears just barely reached the edge of the windowsill, whereas in this case, you could clearly see them in the top of their owner's head. She quickly realized it wasn't the bear because of the pointed shape, brown coloring, and the fact it had two fully intact ears. They also started to detect a very pungent smell on a side door porch, one time finding what looked like some urine or some other liquid stains on it, suggesting an animal had scent marked it to claim the spot. It all came to a head on a Wednesday night when they heard howling in the distance grow closer. My grandmother flipped on a porch light and glimpsed the canine animal quickly sprinting across the lawn on its hind legs again, her sighting confirming how big it was. She'd seen timber wolves at the zoo up to 150 pounds and she was certain this was at least a bit more than twice that size. For several hours of the night, they could hear it roaming around the property and pressing against doors like it was trying to find a way in. They glimpsed at several points, eye shine of yellow eyes peering in through the windows as well as broad, long-fingered paws being pushed against the glass briefly. This was before cell phones and 24-hour police service in some rural areas, so no one had a means of immediately calling the police. Instead, my grandmother had to wait arduous minutes on a dial line with connection difficulty trying to call the police station two towns over. She was distracted by my aunt screaming, running into the bedroom to get one of the guns out. She had been sitting in the living room when she heard clicking against the glass, 
and saw that wolf thing pressing its face and bared teeth against the surface with its claws fully outstretched. Both of them started to try to get the rifles or shotguns out. It was becoming increasingly clear the creature was trying to get into the house and knew they were in there. They heard it panting through a wall before there was the sound of heavy footsteps and a very loud thump with a flash of fur on the edge of the window. They ran to the innermost room, the pantry locker, and stayed in there with the guns. Now it's not like in the movies when creatures roar, snarl, and hiss constantly no matter what they're doing. But they did hear a commotion outside. My aunt and grandmother hadn't the faintest idea what was going on and didn't investigate until the morning after. But they could tell something was fighting or wrestling with something else outside due to occasional grunts, growls, squeals, and rumbles were audible through the blackness for about a minute and gradually moved off. They found no bodies, but there'd clearly been a ferocious altercation. The ground was ripped up in multiple spots, the wall had a dent in it, and there was some oxidized blood traces on the grass and dirt. My grandmother also found a trail where something had charged through the shrubs and recovered several vague dog prints as well as wider tracks moving the same direction. The animals all seemed to come back by the end of the week and the howls stopped. When my grandfather came back home, he, my aunt, and some neighbors surveyed the area to make sure they couldn't find the wolf creature. Evidently, the neighbors had also heard howls around their property at night that stopped recently too. They couldn't find it despite surveying the whole property, though they did find what looked like a trackway leading out of the property and running off into the mountains. Several days later, my grandmother saw Captain again, marking his territory by rubbing up against a tree in their yard and scratching the bark. He had several cuts across his muzzle, was missing patches of fur, had some healed bite wounds on his arm, and the hole in his ear had been torn open to the point he was missing half the ear flap. But other than that and a slight limp that went away with time, he was fine. My aunt joked he looked rather proud of himself. When he was told about the urine-like smell on the doorstep when the wolf creature was running amok, my grandfather speculated it was trying to claim the territory. Usually black bears are relatively passive, but evidently Captain took issue with this newcomer imposing on his space and became aggressive. So what my grandmother and aunt heard that one night was the bear charging while it was distracted and engaging the intruder. While the wolf-looking creature was taller, it seemed skinnier and less massive. In the confrontation and threat displays that likely followed, sheer bulk won out. Apparently, it decided it wasn't worth claiming this spot if it meant having to square off with a quarter ton of claws and teeth for it. Captain had run the intruder off to protect his territory and coincidentally helped my family. As a thank you and so he could recover his strength quicker, my grandmother trimmed the apple trees to down all the fruit and let the bear enjoy himself without feeding him directly. Winter would be in a few months and she wanted him fattened up so he could stick around for the next year, just in case. As she put it, the forest will always have a boss and it's better to have one who's not interested in eating you. Decades have gone by, and while both my grandparents and Captain have passed, the dogman creature never returned. There's been about three black bears who've moved into Captain's place since, and each has grown about as big as he was. Thankfully, that seems to have been enough to ward off any large canines. Next, in the late 90s, a seasoned trucker from Central Texas recounts a chilling encounter along a desolate two-lane road near the border. A good friend of mine told me this story years ago. He is the stereotypical big bad trucker, and I've seen some weird stuff with him while driving in South Texas along the border, but he never batted an eye. 
while telling me this story he had goosebumps and a concerned expression, which coming from this guy, is about the equivalent of a trembling lip and shit-stained pants. I'll tell this story in the first person as he told it to me. Years ago in the late 90s, I was on my way from my house in central Texas, heading to Laredo to pick up a load. It was early morning, around four or five, and I had just come off a string of days at home, so I knew I wasn't tired. I'm on one of those two-lane winding roads in the absolute middle of bumfuck nowhere, and I see something on the side of the road at the edge of my high beams. At first, I just thought it was roadkill, as is usually the case. As I get closer, I see that it is roadkill, and there's someone crouching over the deer carcass. I remember thinking either this guy's taking the antlers as a trophy, or he's fucking sick. As I got closer still, I can now see that this guy's standing over the deer eating it. He's pulling chunks of meat from the stomach and bringing them up to his face. At this point, he stops mid-motion and looks up at me. Not at my truck, but at me. He or it stands up and that's when I see that it's actually a wolf. Or a hairy man-wolf of some kind, but fucking huge and black. This thing is standing on the tiny shoulder of the road looking right at me. By this point, maybe three seconds have passed, and I'm about to the point in the road he's standing at. I didn't even think of stopping, in fact, I'm starting to lay on it and get the hell out of there. As I'm passing it, it's looking at me, again, not at the truck, it's looking through the driver's side windshield at me. He obviously has the intelligence to know that there's a driver in here, and knows where I'm sitting. As I start to pass him, I can still see its head above the hood of an old needle-nose Pete. It's an old truck design where the hood goes straight out from the windshield, known for being tall and difficult to see around. Anyway, this thing is fucking giant, and I remember seeing what looked like human intelligence in its eyes. It scares the shit out of me to this day. Up next, in the depths of a historic, sprawling park that spans three states, a skeptic's routine night hike takes a chilling turn when an otherworldly creature crosses their path. I'd like to preface by saying that I got home about an hour ago, and this actually happened. I never have paranormal encounters and genuinely try to approach everything with a questioning mind. My partner and I like to hike at a local park late at night. It's a historic park in Pennsylvania, about 3,500 acres in size that spans over into the Maryland and Delaware borders. One of the trails allows you to cross through all three states. The entire park is mostly dense woods with a creek running through it. Usually, we park near an old church with a Revolutionary War cemetery that is famous for a grave known as the Ticking Tomb. We usually hike a short loop that is roughly a mile in length, literally thousands of times, and never once felt anything strange. Tonight was different, though. We made a spontaneous decision to go on a night hike and left the house at about 10.45 p.m. I decided to take the narrow dirt road to our usual parking spot rather than driving a mile up the road to a paved access road like we normally do. About halfway down the ragged dirt and gravel road, as we rounded a corner, an animal dashed across the road in the path of our headlights. I've never seen anything like this animal, and I've never seen an animal that size in this area that I couldn't immediately identify. Its size was somewhere between a dog and a human, maybe a bit larger, and it moved so quickly it almost looked like it flew, 
a literal black blur with some hazy details and bright yellow eyes. I'm generally a skeptic, so I just wrote it off and we both kind of explained it away. We made it to our parking spot and pretty much resolved not to talk about it and continue on as usual. Immediately when we got out onto the trail, we noticed the frogs and cicadas were extremely loud, louder than I've ever heard them. As we progressed down the trail, the cicadas got so loud it was difficult to talk over them as we attempted at lightening the mood with conversation. Unbeknownst to me at the time, about a hundred meters down the trail, my partner had begun to hear what he thought were extremely distant voices. I also noticed that the cicadas got progressively quieter the further we got down the trail. We made it about a quarter mile before a sudden louder sound felt like it cut through the space between my ears. It was something like a glitching microphone or megaphone way off in the distance. My partner pointed out to me later that there was nothing for the echo to bounce off of in that area. The moment we heard that sound, I stopped immediately and asked if he heard it too. Not only had he heard it, but he was convincing himself that he was hallucinating the sounds the entire time until I finally acknowledged it. Without discussion, we both immediately turned around and started walking at a fast pace back to the car. I felt like it was a bad idea to run, but we had to leave right away. We hoofed it back to the car with the feeling that something was following us all the way to the entrance. When we finally got back into the car and started driving, the feeling of urgency didn't go away. We made it all the way down the main road to our first turn and I felt a moment of complete confusion. As I slowed to the turn, my partner asked me, do you not know where you are right now? Because I don't. We have literally driven this road thousands of times. I made a split-second decision to turn right, which was thankfully the right choice. The next road went along the perimeter of the park and parallel with the trail we were hiking. There was a ton of fog, which hadn't been there on our way in. We spent maybe 20 minutes at the park, so the fog must have come in quickly to only enhance the mood of our experience. The universe is funny like that. Just as we made our way past the area that we had turned around, another animal darted across the road in front of our headlights. It looked exactly like the one we saw on our way in, only closer and in more detail. It had yellow eyes and what looked like pointy ears. It was still insanely fast and still for the most part, a blur. I don't know how else to describe it. I get this really weird feeling when I think or talk about it. The feeling started when I saw it run across the road the second time. I feel like it's because I acknowledged that whatever that thing was, I didn't have an explanation for it. Like I said before, I'm usually a skeptic when it comes to this kind of stuff, but this experience has left me rattled. It's going to be hard to go back to that trail without thinking about what we saw. Coming up. The following encounter is an excerpt taken from the article written by Jan Thompson entitled The Beast of the Land Between the Lakes. Please be warned, this story has some very graphic descriptions and a missing child. Back before the 1950s, it always had been a very rural area to live in, with farmsteads far and few between, and with no real town to speak of except up at the north end in Grand Rivers. It was in this town back in the mid-70s that I first heard of the beast between the rivers, or known now as 
the beast of LBL. Some old timers would sit on this long wooden bench outside the old IGA store that used to be the old country store for decades before the grocery conglomerate came to town. I used to hang around there on the weekends during the day and listen to the stories they each would tell. These old men, most of whom used to live in LBL before they were forced to move, had some very interesting stories to tell about that part of the country. There was talk of hauntings, Indian curses, mysterious lights over gravestones at night, old hag witches that lived deep in the woods, and more importantly, several tales of a wolf-like creature that stood on two legs that would come out of the thickets and attack their cattle and livestock. Walk with me now as I take you back to the early 1980s, where I used to work midnights at a gas station a few miles from the Kentucky Dam, which was a few miles from the beginning of LBL in Grand Rivers, and it was on one of these midnight shifts, I had two visitors that would change my outlook on the subject of werewolves and make me believe in what I had seen myself a few years back. In the same area, but had kept it between myself and two other family members that were with me at the time. But that's another story to be written. This story was never in the paper, on the news, or had any media attention at all. It was kept hush-hush and a sacred silence was demanded on all those involved. It couldn't get out, ever. It was a few weeks before the beginning of tourist season and tourists were what the locals survived on. They were the bread and butter. A story like this would be like screaming shark at a beach in Daytona. The people would stop coming out of fear. I wasn't a witness to the fact just a third person making observations and having conversations with two individuals who were a part of the incident. They had just come from the crime scene down in the middle of LBL after being there for over eight hours. It was around three in the morning, and they were taking a much-needed reality break. Two officers of the law, two grown men who both appeared shaken beyond description. A mixture of fear and confusion, shock and disbelief emanated from them both. One was paler than the other, a deathly pallor over his skin, and it was this one, I'll name him Officer Adam to protect their identities, that had to sit on the curb of the gas pumps, head between his legs and expel the last bit of his stomach contents. The other officer, I'll name him Officer Bill, came in for some coffee for himself and a cup of water for his partner, then rejoined Adam outside. There were no other customers, so I went outside with them to see if I could offer some assistance with the ill-looking man. He gladly took the few Rolades I had extended in my hand. With his own shaky fingers, he struggled to get them into his mouth. For quite a long while, the only thing that was heard were the crickets in the nearby fields, the sounds of bugs hitting the fluorescent lights above us, and the distant sound of highway traffic that was far and few between, as it was the early hours of the morning. My mind was buzzing with various scenarios of the cause of their distress. A tragic car accident, possibly a motorcycle wreck, a boating mishap with drowned victims, a murder, a dead body discovered. I don't remember sitting down, but after about 15 minutes of this hushed stillness, I found myself beside them both on the curb, staring out at the darkness of the nearby corn pastures, letting my mind paint pictures of imaginary traumas Adam spoke first, breaking the silence of obscurity. I can't believe it. It's not possible. I just can't believe it. In a hushed agreement that was almost inaudible, Bill replied, I know. It was... is... it is so unbelievable. 
I've never seen anything like this before. A long pause, a deep breath, and he continued, or have even heard of anything like this. I looked at Bill and then at Adam. They were both gazing, open-eyed, unblinking, out into the inky color of the night. Adam's bottom lip was trembling slightly, and it wasn't from the slight chill in the late spring air. Something or something had filled them each with a congested fear. After a few more moments of silent reserve, my patience was rewarded with some slow, fragmented descriptions of their past eight hours. Bill turned his wide azure blue eyes towards me. They were glazed and bloodshot, tired, frightened eyes. With a weary, shaken voice, he began to unfold a tale that would forever be embedded within my spirit, like a nasty shadow that lingers around a corner waiting to pounce, to awaken your inner fears once again. Why he decided to tell me of all people was beyond my comprehension. Maybe it was an avenue he felt safe to travel upon, to get it off his chest, off his mind. They were both frequent customers and we knew each other on a first name basis. But to divulge such a torrid account of great magnitude, well, I can only say that the fear inside them both at that moment in time had to be released, eased, and extracted from their souls, or else they may have gone mad with unbalanced thoughts. Without interrupting, I sat entranced, listening to every word, absorbing them like an opiate, a spellbinding narcotic that hypnotized me into forgetting the world even existed for the next half hour or so. They had gotten a call to help with an investigation at one of the many rural campgrounds down in LBL. The tourist season was about to start in a few weeks, so as usual, there were some early arrivals that had come to claim prime camping spots before the areas were overrun with tents, campers, and travel trailers. The sun was setting low in the sky when they arrived at the scene. Several other official vehicles were already there, and there were many more to come as they would soon find out. Many coming from other counties, and a few coming all the way from another state, Several of these to come were coroners from different counties. One's coroner vehicle was already present, as well as an ambulance, which would prove useless, as there was no one to save. The victims were all dead. Quite dead. Completely, totally, and thoroughly deceased. A young married couple that had come down to take it easy for a few days were the first to discover the ghastly scene. Neither one of them wanted to stay behind while the other went for help, so they both nervously traveled to the nearest town, Grand Rivers, and called the authorities. They did not return to LBL. They merely gave the arriving officer directions to the area of discovery and rented a local hotel room. With the sun going down, it got dark pretty fast, so there was a flurry of floodlights from the cruisers being pointed in all directions, along with the excited movements of $50 flashlights being held by nervous, restless hands, searching the trees, the ground, the leaves, the shadows. There was a parked motorhome at the site, its frame being lit by a campfire close by, a fire that had almost gone out on its own, but had been rekindled by the new crowd of men in uniforms so that they could have more light. The front and back doors to the home were open, one of the doors hanging by one hinge in a crooked slant. Through the windows, they could see zigzagged movements of luminosity as the beams from flashlights searched the interior. Bloody handprints slid down the thin metal walls close to the front door, and more bloody hand paintings could be seen along the length towards the back door, their images dancing eerily in the firelight, like some ancient tribal symbols. 
Adam and Bill did not even want to imagine what was inside the motorhome. But then again, they would soon find out that it wasn't what was inside, but what was outside that would change their lives forever. There was already crime scene tape placed in numerous scattered parts of the area, and little white flags on metal stakes stuck into the ground marking evidence. Evidence of ripped clothing, bodies and body parts, separated limbs, a pile of bowels, pieces of loose flesh clinging to muscle tissue. What used to be three bodies that just hours before had been a happy family, on a happy vacation to create happy memories for years to come. A father, a mother, and a young son. The happiness was gone, destroyed by a psychotic madman? Or was it men? A murderous rage had taken place, one so abhorrently appalling that there were few witnesses to the scene that had kept their composure or held their recently eaten dinners down. At first sight, the victims appeared to be butchered by some unnameable weapon possibly an axe or a chainsaw. Upon further inspection by the first arriving coroner, the wounds on the bodies were determined not to have been caused by a sharp instrument, but rather by some piercing, well-defined claws and other wounds by some keen, mordantly long incisors. Wildcat, bear, wolves? The coroner shook his head in baffled disagreement with each guess from the officers. The claw marks, for instance, on the back of the father's corpse were distinctively made by four long claws with a smaller digit, like a thumb, on the side. Its span was wider than a man's print, wider and different than a bear's mark, with deep, deliberate gouges in the flesh. Rake marks from an angry unknown source trying to grab its prey that was no doubt trying to escape. The wildcat and wolves theory was dismissed, as the open wound marks were apparently made by a more grandiose animal source. The bite marks were much larger than any mountain lion, wolf, or coyote. Whatever did it had a longer snout and more sizable teeth. There was also indications in the larger areas of the cadavers, of bite marks where the flesh, meat, and bone had been yanked away from the body. Like a human who bites into an apple and leaves the impressions of his bite and teeth marks, so were the open wounds on these individuals. Bears, well, they aren't native to the area, but who knows, maybe a grizzly did sneak in some way. But that was far-fetched. He would have had to travel several states and cross several rivers to even get close to that part of Kentucky. Everyone present was betting on the bear hypothesis anyway, and no one even thought of anything else to be the cause of such a savage attack. A bear, it had to be a bear. From the back door of the motorhome, an officer stepped down slowly, holding in his hands some type of garment. A dress, a small dress that would have fit a small girl of around five years old. This meant there was a missing person, or an absent body, a member of the family. They all prayed she was still alive somehow, hiding somewhere. A new search began. As time went by, additional law enforcement employees arrived, as well as a few volunteer rescue squad members. Groups were spread out and assigned areas to examine and explore. Another coroner arrived to assist in the identification and causes of death, and much later a third one showed up, this one from a nearby state. All types of samples were placed in plastic bags marked as evidence and carefully stowed away. As they were packaging up what appeared to be one of the father's arms, one of the doctors noticed something wrapped between the dead fingers. Some tweezers slowly untangled a clump of long gray and brown hairs, 
This too was placed in a bag, marked and put away to be analyzed at a lab later. From somewhere in the nearby woods, about 50 yards from the campfire, a scream was heard. A man's shriek that turned into a long wail and then to whimpering. As others arrived, they could see by the gleam of several flashlights that the cop was holding his hat in one hand and his light in the other. There was blood on his face, the front of his shirt, and on the brim of his hat. More blood could be seen dripping on him. It was coming from above. High in the trees, the flashlight swung, searching for the source of the mysterious bleeding. A very small hand could be seen dangling down from a tree limb way up high, as well as a slender, lifeless leg that still had a white sock still on the foot. The missing child had been located. It had been Adam that the blood had trickled upon, hitting his hat first, making him look up, and then feeling the thick, cold fluid sprinkling his face, then sliding down to his neatly buttoned shirt. It had been Adam that had screamed. The little girl had apparently been carried up the tree and leisurely eaten upon, while carefully laid across a large tree branch. More of the same long gray and brown hair was found sticking in the bark of the tree near her body. After about seven hours, most of the officers were sent away as a new team of investigators arrived. They were told not to talk to anyone of the incident, especially not the media. I'm sure that besides Adam and Bill, there were others who had to confess what they saw that night, if in fact this whole event ever really happened. About a month after sitting outside with Adam and Bill that night, they stopped in again during one of my midnight shifts. They were both rather quiet, more serious in nature, not like before the incident where they would kid around while drinking their sodas and eating a snack or two. They had both aged in some odd way. Streaks of gray that had not been there before highlighted both of their heads of hair. Their faces had lines of worry and showed signs of stress. I would see them again many times afterward, but on this particular evening, they informed me that they got word about some of the lab tests that were taken that dreadful night. The tests on the saliva taken from the bite marks and from the hair found on the man's fingers and in the tree bark came back with an unknown species origin. The closest animal that they could be compared to was that of a Canis lupus, a wolf. Whether Adam and Bill had played an elaborate hoax on me, I'll never really know for sure. But their sincerity and fear painted a picture of truth in their eyes. Next up, we're headed out to San Paulo, Brazil, where a seemingly routine shortcut through a moonlit trail takes a creepy turn with a mysterious, massive hunchback wolf-like creature. My father likes to visit the sports club of the local university where he teaches to run and exercise. It is a large sports area with swimming pools, soccer, and basketball fields. He still goes there every now and then. This place is at the exit to the next town and close to where we live in San Paulo, Brazil. He goes there walking and cuts through on a trail that goes up a ravine, passing beside a large eucalyptus plantation. Through this shortcut, you can avoid walking half a kilometer uphill to the main entrance. A lot of people use this shortcut, including the local employees. One day, he went for a run a little later than usual, at around 6.30 p.m. About an hour later, the sun was already setting. With just a few more minutes left of daylight, he was exhausted, so he decided to return by the same shortcut as usual. It would not be much of a problem since the full moon was high in the sky, and he could see without a flashlight. When he reached the edge of the woods, he noticed a figure in the middle of the trees that looked like a horse inside the eucalyptus fields. He first ignored it, 
and kept walking, thinking if he should try to let someone know about it. But this place is surrounded by farmers that own horses, so he decided not to. He kept walking, but started to feel strange, as if someone was watching him. The feeling soon became stronger. After a few more steps, he realized that the horse was walking alongside him, so he looked again between the trees and saw that it was behind a tree. He thought that was strange. Do horses hide? Also, it managed to stand facing the tree between them. He just shook it off and continued on the trail. He was already halfway down, but his sense of fear was increasing. So he looked at the horse again, and as his eyes adjusted to the darkness, he could see it a little better. Now it didn't really move like a horse at all because he saw the animal jump from behind a tree to another. By the way it jumped, it seemed to be a very tall and strong well-built person or athlete. He stopped in shock and stared at the thing, still behind the tree, and noticed something swinging. What he previously thought was the horse's tail now looked like a man wearing a long coat or something. But the darkness and shadows of the branches were obscuring the figure enough it wasn't completely clear. He decided to ignore it and move on, thinking it was maybe just his imagination. He kept on track, but at the end of the trail, there is a point where his path and the path where the animal was would cross each other. He started to freak out and decided to go back to the field and take the main road. So he started walking back, paying close attention to the animal. At one point, he even thought it could be a friend trying to scare him. Going back towards the field where the lights were now on, he could better see its silhouette, a massive muscular thing, hunchbacked, apparently covered in thick fur and what seemed like large pointy ears. He stopped in disbelief, but the creature kept walking towards him, not worrying much about hiding anymore. That's when his blood ran cold. The animal was approaching from the side as if it wanted to trap him. He tried not to run in order to display confidence and avoid giving it something to chase. So he fast walked back towards the field, distancing himself from the trail as much as possible when he took one last glance. The animal was there, still, lowered in a bush on all fours like a gorilla, but it looked like a huge human-shaped dog or wolf. When they were around 100 meters apart, my father ran to the main entrance at the avenue and was relieved to see that the animal did not follow. He came back home using the main populated road, still on high alert, shitting his pants the whole way. Now, every time he goes there, he makes sure he doesn't stay past dust to avoid another run-in with this creature. In our final story of the evening, on a scenic drive home from Georgia, a Florida woman has a run-in with a werewolf. Me and my wife work in television, and it requires a lot of traveling and many late-night car rides. We live in Florida, and my wife had to go to Georgia for work. Since we take a lot of plane rides for work, sometimes when it's just a four to seven hours drive away, we decide to drive and take in some sights. Believe me, after 20 plus years of flying, being able to drive occasionally is a blessing because you get so fed up with sitting in planes and breathing recycled air. It's about 11.30 p.m. when her brother texts me to pick up the phone when she calls, which I thought was odd because why wouldn't I pick up? As soon as I'm reading the text, I get a frantic phone call from my wife. Please understand that my wife doesn't subscribe to any cryptid or paranormal podcasts. I, however, most certainly do. So for her to be this freaked out and panicked means something crazy went down. She starts talking really fast and I can't understand any of what she's telling me. Eventually, I tell her to calm down and tell me what is going on. She says, I've seen one of those things you sometimes talk about the documentary thing. Still kind of puzzled, I ask her, 
What documentary thing exactly? She replies, the wolf thing, the human wolf. Dogman? Yes, dogman. She's driving down from Georgia and is at this point two hours removed from our house, and we are located just above Tampa. She's already driving in Florida, but she's driving down this road around 45 miles per hour. But to give you an idea of the road itself, it's not a big populated highway. It's more of a backcountry road. As she's making a turn, her lights hit what she at that moment thinks is a man bent over on the side of the road. She figures that's really odd because who would be standing in the middle of the night on a small, unlit road? Then as the light is hitting it more and more, she realizes that there's something off here as she gets closer, revealing that the arms are completely covered in hair, and it's reaching to pick up something off the ground. She also sees massive hands. When it's fully lit up, this thing is hunched over and is already standing at seven feet and starts to get taller. She sees a complete canine head with ears pointed up. She tells me that despite going pretty fast, it's like everything is slowing down for her so that her brain can make sense of it. She tells me it has really long, thin arms, very muscular though, short fur with longer fur at the back and neck and where the thighs meet. By the time she passes it, it almost stood up completely and has not once looked in her direction or acknowledged the car or the light, and it is as if this thing didn't really care that she was coming. She tells me that she was on the phone with her brother as she sees this thing, and she started screaming when she saw it, which is when she screams that she's got to call me. After she tells me the story, I calm her down, tell her not to get out of the car anywhere until she gets home, and ask her if she has enough gas to make it home without stopping at a gas station, which thankfully, she does. She carries a firearm, but there was no way she was going to stand a chance against this thing if it decided to go after her. We talk a bit as I can tell she's in shock, and she tells me that she's trying to make sense of it. She wonders if it was a YouTube prankster, trying to create sighting reports or something. But none of this makes any sense, as that road is completely deserted and in the middle of nowhere. Surely, if it was a prank, they'd be doing it on a busier road. Now, does that rule out it wasn't? No, but nonetheless, it was a sighting, and for my wife, it was very, very real. After we hung up, I got so spooked because I enjoy a lot of the cryptid stuff, and realized that two hours away from our house is pretty remote and surrounded by acres of land and woods. I can't imagine what she was going through and how scared she must have been. I sat downstairs waiting to hear the garage so I could come and greet her when she arrived. She was still a bit shaken up, and we spoke about it with some friends and family members in the days after, but I'm the only one that had any idea of what it could have been. Now we're both obsessed with the topic. That's all for tonight, dear listeners. Until next time, I'll be leaving you in the dark where whispers linger and shadows dance. Stay wary, sleep well, and beware the dogman in the night. If you have a story to tell, please reach out via email at contact campfirecultpod.com or leave me a voicemail message at 720-297-8608. You can follow us anywhere on social media at Campfire Cult Pod and online at campfirecultpod.com. And finally, if you don't mind, please rate and review wherever possible. 